Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the e-journal uh, Global Summetry, which you can find at the Global Summetry Project website. Um, it's my pleasure today to welcome back uh, my two colleagues uh, from the uh, Vision 20 um, project, and that is Colin uh, Bradford and Eve Tabergen. Uh, when we were last together, this is episode one, uh, we spent some time uh, discussing uh, the China in the West Dialogue project, which all three of us have co-chaired. Uh, today, I want to uh, look more closely at uh, both U.S. relations with China and China relations to the West. What do U.S.-China relations say about the state of the liberal order? So, uh, welcome back, uh, Colin and Eve. So, uh, Colin and Eve, uh, welcome back to the virtual studio. Uh, when we were last together uh, in the studio, we spent some time describing and discussing uh, the China in the West Dialogue Project, which, as we pointed out, all three of us have co-chaired uh, and held several uh, workshops. Uh, today, I wanted to look more closely at the uh, U.S. relations to China and China relations to the West, uh, and what do these uh, relationships and tensions say about the state of the liberal order. So uh, here, here I want to start with a quote from our good friend Fareed Zakaria, who wrote a few months ago, ever since uh, President Xi Jinping became the country's supreme ruler, China's uh, economic liberalization has slowed and its political reform, limited in any case, has been reversed. Uh, Beijing now combines political repression with nationalist propaganda that harks back to the Mao era. Abroad, China is more ambitious and assertive, and my insert, uh, I would say even threatening in certain cases, uh, ergo Canada. Uh, these shifts are real and worrying. So, Eve, where has she taken the party in the government, and what are the consequences of this? Uh, we do see uh, a much uh, harder um, turn within Chinese domestic governance. Uh, we even see what uh, what we tend to call rectification campaign was uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of all the cadre is going through education and tightening the ideological uh, purity. That that behavior, not the harshness, but the behavior remi reminds us of the Mao period. Um, we do see that. We also see uh, harsher methods of repression and control. Uh, we, we see what has happened in uh, Xinjiang with the uh, forced radiation camps um, for, for Uyghurs. Um, and then we see extremely um, strong responses along the periphery, all along the periphery. Uh, and that includes Hong Kong, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, what what does it mean and uh, what's driving it? And it started actually uh, being a puzzle at the beginning because it, back in 2012, 
we knew that uh, you know the Chinese leadership had high legitimacy, was successful in economic, you know, social, international terms, and so it was puzzling that the party would choose that moment to uh, tighten up, to reverse some of the freedoms, uh, and to really launch a sense of uh, of domestic crisis, right, uh, mm-hmm. with eradication and anti-corruption and all kind of things. Um, we now know that Xi Jinping personally felt a sense of inner crisis. I think what's driving it is a sense of loss of control of some socioeconomic forces. Um, and he felt that the process down the line would lead to uh, something like what happened to the Soviet Union. Uh, the fragmentation of the country, the unity, you know, s- stopping a uh, dissolution of unity of the country. So he is much more um, reactive and uh, under a sense of threat that we perceive. And so, um, and we don't exactly know what drove it, right? It may have been the attempted coup against him in 2012 when Bo Xilai and Zhou Yongkang nearly uh, got power. Uh, we, we don't know where the triggers were, but there is that sense of inner crisis. And that's what's driving all this. Uh, that's internally. Uh, externally, uh, clearly there are issues of high defensiveness. So I, I wouldn't characterize the behavior we observe as assertiveness, but rather defensiveness around the core perimeter and a sense of vulnerability and a very, very high sense of pushback. Uh, and all this steeped in a deep mistrust. That is, there is a sense of crisis that because of the size of the Chinese displacement and where they are, that the U.S. and the West uh, will now try to stop them, uh, stop them even from the economic growth. Uh, so those are some of the logic we can observe. Now, one caveat, of course, is that the governance itself at the heart is a Leninist system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Leninist structure and uh, norms, which go back 100 years, right? And it's, uh, and it's a very tough history. Uh, steeped in guerrilla and civil war and war. And uh, and so they have reflexes that are very harsh. Uh, and so some of that is the channel through which the response is happening right now. Um, but we have also seen over periods of time that China can react more as a sort of dynasty following its 5,000-year history of norms and practices. So there's a hybridization between the Leninist component and the Chinese historical dimension. Uh, How permanent is this? How fundamental is it? Um, I think it's pretty deep, but it's not uh, the end point, right? This is, uh, you know, we have seen movements like this within uh, even the last 75 years, uh, back and forth, so hardening and opening. Uh, so I don't think it precludes future opening, but it does present a challenge for how do we deal with it. Well, and exactly that point, you know, where does it leave then, given, you know, your acknowledged um, change in, in kind of policymaking due to what appear to be domestic forces in China, where does that leave you know the, the kind of relationship then with others, but let's let's focus particularly here on the United States. Um, so there's two types of behavior. I, I would put two different categories. One category is because of that sense of vulnerability or that sense of um, you know. Uh, Uncertainty with respond to the openness. Even back, you know, 2000 or 2010, um, 
or the 2010s, uh, there is always a sense that the window of opening with the West may not last forever, which then triggers some opportunistic behavior. And that's where some of the behavior on trade maybe can be classified. So those are behavior that comes on the Chinese side. And of course, they have detrimental effects on the other side. So for those kind of behavior, the key is, uh, the ideal would be, you know, sort of... Uh, pulling the alarm as soon as they are seen. You know, we know in trade they started in 2006 and then having a second round of negotiation uh, like the WTO negotiation with all the Western countries and find a negotiated way to deal with this. That would have been the high road. It was not chosen and so things accumulated. Uh, and then there is other kind of situation where, where China is being punched really uh, because of the sense of that threat, some of which is real, some of which is, uh, is exaggerated. Um, and when facing those situations, those harsh military uh, you know, encircling or, uh, or certain very, very tough sanctions or embargoes and the like, the, uh, because of the sense of vulnerability, uh, the Chinese response is always escalation. It's always pushing back. And so that second category of situation is one where we... You know, anyone engaging those uh, moves with China has to calculate the response, right? And there's always a response. And then it leads to counter-response and counter-response. So there is currently, we, we find those cycles of action-reaction, tit-for-tat uh, processes where no one seems to be in the driver, right? But it's particularly true that under Xi Jinping, there doesn't seem to be much room for uh, backtracking, right? There is... Mm systematically uh, uh, respond in kind and or in a different uh, locale or on different issue areas, but there's always a response and there's always a, a strong pushback. And I'm assuming, I'm going to shift gears in just a second, but I assume that that relates to issues like, you know, this pushing back, presumably Hong Kong, um, South China Sea, um, East China Sea vis-a-vis Japan, that these are the arenas in which we see that beha- that second form of behavior. Am I right? Eve? Yeah, so a typical example is the freedom of navigation. Uh, yeah, the FONOPS. The FONOPS yeah. in South yeah. China Sea. Where, yeah, so on one hand, it's true that, you know, China is stuck with this idea of this nine dash line which is inherited from Chiang Kai-shek ironically but <laughs> they don't want to be uh, doing less good than Chiang Kai-shek <laughs> uh, and then so they and then meanwhile of course other countries like Vietnam have built up islands faster than the Chinese not massively but faster and so here they go they start building their islands but this flourished massively uh, and as the U.S. pushes back and brings fun ups each yep. one that leads to a response and escalation from China. And so, oh, you do fun ups, now I'm going to land a, 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 an aircraft on one of the islands, which okay. they probably did not plan to do before. Mm. But then once they land an aircraft and put missiles, then the, the U.S. says, ah, you're militarizing. Uh, so we're going to bring bigger fun ups. Uh, and so then the Chinese response is even bigger. So, so far, I have not seen anything but that kind of process right okay so if on the west the goal is to not militarize the uh, island and islands and not to give more uh, you know budget to the military or more just justification for getting money 
then we're doing it the wrong way because each move brings more money to the military and more missiles on the islands. Okay. And just for the audience, just to make sure, FONOPS uh, are the catchy little phrase for freedom of navigation, um, uh, which are these initiatives by uh, the U.S. Uh, Navy in particular, but others as well, which occasionally join in uh, to uh, move among the islands in the South China Sea. All right, so I want to switch a little bit here now that we've got a, a, some sense of Chinese policymaking, Chinese foreign policy under the era of Xi Jinping, and look at uh, really a, a, pres- a perspective uh, view, uh, and that is uh, for the United States, and that is um, uh, looking towards the possibility of a uh, a Biden foreign policy. We certainly at the moment know Trump foreign policy. So let me switch to Biden foreign policy. Uh, we have read, seen uh, by way of uh, workshops and and um, and the rest that uh, several uh, former advisors to uh, Vice President Biden, or even uh, in many cases former Obama officials, have declared the policy of engagement. Uh, at an end, and called for a U.S. policy of what they call strategic competition, or as a number of our colleagues uh, who are close to uh, uh, the Biden campaign, call competition without catastrophe. So, um, uh, Colin, uh, do you accept, first of all, that the long engagement policy that we've seen, uh, U.S. policy over several different administrations, is in fact at an end. And uh, can you, uh, well, let's start there. Do you believe it to be at an end as we understand it? Right. The question is, how do we understand the engagement policy? If the engagement policy meant, as indeed in some respects it did mean, Mm -hmm. uh, convergence, that is to say that that enticing China to participate in the Bretton Woods era, the liberal international order, was a was based on faith in the U.S. in particular that such an engagement would inevitably mean not only ep- opening up economically but also liberalizing politically. Well, that's a, that's a bit strong, and it's clear that many of us who have who have examined that. Uh, uh, particularly uh, our friend uh, Alistair Johnston, uh, don't acknowledge or, uh, you know, uh, don't suggest that that was the underlying basis for engagement policy uh, for American foreign policy, right? Certainly the economic liberalization was there, but the political liberalization was more wish and hope. But the question is, uh, you know, whether high-level officials in the U.S. government that I, I have reason to know, who were quite explicit about the fact that some did they thought that economic liberalization would lead to democracy someday in China. Well, someday. I mean, most would argue that you know, they weren't counting on it anytime soon. But anyhow, I'll I, I'll accept your premise, which is that there was an economic and a political logic. And having said that. Uh, the question then becomes, is that now finished? And if it is finished, uh, what then should be uh, an alternative strategy? Well, it is you, good sir, who has has given the name strategic engagement to the approach that we're taking, which contrasts with 
uh, strategic competition, um, which others have proposed. And I, I would say that, you know, another thing, another way to put engagement is n- neither as an economic um, uh, policy nor as a political goal, but is to say that engagement, the kind of engagement that we would seek would be multiple engagements across multiple issues, a la Ian Johnston, mm-hmm. um, which would focus on the content and accept the historical facts, which he's substantiated in his international securities uh, studies article last year, that um, that behaviors by the U.S. and China in different realms will be different. And therefore, you get away from this whole, I think what we don't need to do is engage in a values discussion with the Chinese or with anybody else around the world about uh, the liberal international order. What we need to, ex- I think, ha- accepting Alistair, Ian Alistair Johnson's, Johnston's um, idea of, of multiple global orders is mm-hmm. one which helps disaggregate, decentralize, and and take the ideological and and drama out of the toxic U.S. bilateral relationship with China and places more emphasis on the challenges themselves, the problems, the issues, and try and the importance of of doing business with China on the on this array of international challenges. And that that isn't that requires engagement by both sides, but it requires a different sort of engagement. Yes. You know, as as Paul Martin has told us, you know, nobody said you have to like the people you're negotiating with. You just have to recognize that if they're influential enough, you need to talk to them and need to need to deal with each other. And so I think that period of engagement is yet to be undertaken and re-undertaken, which is what I'm hoping will happen in 2021. So re-undertaken now in 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 thinking about that, clearly uh, the folks who are constructing uh, you know their po- the policy apparently this competition without catastrophe kind of approach um, you know do uh, focus and rely a great deal on um, rebuilding uh, the alliances and strengthening uh, uh, the relationship with allies this I take it in contrast to, uh, uh, our friend uh, Donald Trump and his administration, um, and and in fact supporting kind of uh, uh, you know kind of uh, democracy um, uh, where necessary. Um, how you know is that does that make sense from your perspective in this less ideological, more pragmatic? kind of issues area various issue area discussions does that does that make sense to you it makes sense to me and i think the u.s uh, eve is often very good at, at pointing out contradictory and complex uh simultaneity in the way that different <laughs> threats go forward at the same in the same moment yeah and i think i think so i think inevitably if there is a biden presidency which today it looks increasingly that there will be that you know we will be strengthening nato strengthening the relationship with our allies we will be rejoining and refunding the who we will join rejoin the paris agreements etc 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 
Mm-hmm. And so there is this notion of getting back to normal with the countries that we've been most friendly with, which we tend to call allies. Now, the problem, I think, with the term, which I think is all good, but except for the term allies. So what I th- think is a, is a different modality is the one that a lot of countries are looking for, which is what we called in 2010 with Stuart Patrick, uh, shifting coalitions of consensus, is that part of this idea of having multiple orders and multiple ne- negotiating forums and different behaviors within each is the fact that coalitions within each, majority coalitions that form around the, that form the consensus in each of these orders mm-hmm. could be different. I don't, Chen Dongchao made a very prescient comment in, in, in his, in one of the Global Solutions Summit um, uh, presentations that he made with Eve, which he said that countries are looking for, I think he was referring specifically to countries in Asia, by the way, which is an interesting from a Chinese point of view, is that countries in Asia are seeking strategic autonomy, was the phrase that he used. And I think that's correct, is that Korea may wish to be with the United States on certain issues, but it's probably not going to make up its mind how it's going to align itself based on its sense of being loyal to the allyship, if you like it, with the U.S. or with the West, but is rather, it's rather going to be driven by their national interests in those particular spaces. And Korea may go with one group of countries in one setting and not with another group. And I'm just picking Korea out arbitrarily. It could be any country in Asia or elsewhere. I think it's a different way of thinking about things. I think the less we use the term allies, because allies Im- implies that you have an adversarial relationship with someone else for which you need allies. And if you say, um, I accept a more secular and, and dynamic and, un, and less predictable set of arrangements in which your, your countries are driven by interests and their need for strategic autonomy to make different decisions in different realms, I, th- I think you're, it's a better world. It, it, it's a more likely to be the opposite of the world we're in, which is so vexing, which is a world a policy making without knowledge. You go back to a knowledge-based driven set of negotiations in which content matters. And Fair enough, but I mean, if, if you're right, how, how do you, you know, what's the point of having a NATO? What's the point? Oh, well, ha- I think well the but, NATO but, thing but, is a different story. The NATO but, thing is a different story. It also has but, a different adversary, by the way. It does, but that, you know, I don't quite understand... Uh, you know, how South, uh, South Korea can have a bilateral treaty with the United States uh, and, and or Japan, a bilateral treaty with the United States, but then they're seeking strategic autonomy. I don't know how you put the two things together. To me, not military strategic, military security I did, I, to quite frankly, until this moment, I never thought about the fact that I should think about that, <laughs> is that I took it to mean, because it nested well with this shifting coalitions of consensus idea that I've had for some years, which is with, with the notion that you want to reserve the right to decide how you're going to align yourself and get different fora based on your interest in that particular segment of issues. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that certainly has, you know, so even, even within the context of things like... An ally with the United States or not an ally of the United States about health or climate change, you're going to be to line up about 
how ambitious are you on climate? Sure. Are, are you able to be politically in your country to, to be ambitious on climate change or on global health for that matter? That makes a lot of sense. But why have we, you know, uh, uh, the notion of these alliances, you're right, tends to be security oriented, but we never presumed uh, that on, let's say, an issue like climate change, we could draw on the fact of NATO or draw on the fact of the bilateral relationship treaties with various countries to secure support. I mean, we've we moved away from those kinds of perspectives. Certainly, even during the Cold War, people there were disagreements among the at the allies, right? Right, but but the term allies has come up as you, as you pointed out in the beginning of this this uh, little repartee here is that you brought up the term which which Biden's people have done, which is to, to talk about allies. And, right. and I just don't think, you know, I, I don't know about you, but for, for 25 years or maybe 40 years, I've never used the term foreigner. And, you know, I just don't think it's a good way to think about countries or people to think about them either being foreigners or allies. I think countries are different. People are different. It's part of what makes other people attractive. And so let's treat the holistic panoply of humanity in a different, with a different set of categories, which enables people to, to negotiate differently and to be accepted differently. I mean, that's the point. I mean, is, and, and the, way it, the way you would hear it, if you were inclined to hear it this way anyway, is with the term ally in Beijing being used in the West would have to be in a sensitive situation of feeling vulnerable and feeling encircled, and as as Eve just described a few minutes ago, is it would have to go down in Beijing as a kind of ad, an assumption that allies are needed in the West because we're the adversary. And so, let's let's de detoxify the language and the concepts so that we can actually sit down as peers and negotiate and and get into the details of the issues and come up three to five years from now and say, okay, did this work or didn't it? And are, are we now adversaries or aren't we? Yet we had different views on different issues, but did we succeed with China over the next five well, years? Well, that, that's fair, but I'm not sure that world doesn't already exist for and hasn't existed for several decades. I mean, allies, not allies, you know, we've had strong differences of opinion with uh, our colleagues who might be our, our countries uh, that uh, over all a lot of issues, uh, including things like um, uh, climate change, uh, public health in some cases. So, you know, if that's the case, aren't we there? And aren't you just arguing about the use of certain language? Well, we obviously might have different views of, on that I think the language we use is important. That's what okay. I would stick up for. And if we're there, if we have been there at earlier periods, we're not there now because of the conflicting narratives between China and the U.S. and between you, between Trump and China. Trump has created a circumstance in which any any country would feel um, put upon, let's say, put in a corner being categorized as an adversary. 
Well, that's fair. I mean, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the terminology of strategic autonomy really emerged, if, if anywhere, in Europe uh, among some of our European allies. Uh, but let me turn then, and I wanted uh, to get Eve to look, uh, examine uh, uh, the issue of um, the issue of you know uh, particularly uh, Europe's views of China currently or quite recently. What we saw uh, was um, there was a summit, not, not of uh, leaders, but of the European uh, um, uh Council, uh, yeah, Commission, sorry, and Council, and that, um, in fact, uh, it was uh, this meeting, which took place virtual, obviously, was seen to be quite a um, frosty kind of uh, relation, uh, relationship exhibited between uh, Europe and uh, China, Eve. Um, what we saw was uh, that they ended the meeting, no communique, uh, and soon thereafter, some very relatively strong, tough talk uh, from uh, the European Commission President, Ursula uh, von der Leyen. Indeed, uh, increasingly, the EU has used the terminology of China being a rival and that they need uh, to make uh, changes and to meet some of the uh, Conditions or proposals that um, uh, that have been going on between uh, China and uh, the EU, as uh, uh, she argued, we are committed to making swift and substantial progress after the summit, ticking off a litany of unfulfilled Chinese promises on trade policy, investment policy, industrial subsidies climate change, and human rights. And as she concluded, we count on the Chinese leadership to match our level of ambition. So what do you think, what do you, where do you think the uh, China-EU relationship is now? And uh, when I'm saying EU, obviously it's the Commission of the Council, but also the, you know, clearly the major, the major uh, states within the European Union. Well, essentially, is in a major. It's in a major conundrum. Uh, we have to uh, consider two different summits, right? There was also a summit two weeks ago with uh, with uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, yes. uh, of uh, the EU foreign ministers. That was also very frosty, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know the comments or the tweets by Secretary Pompeo and the tweet from uh, uh, Joseph Borrell were completely different, right? As if they were in different planets. Uh, the Pompeo tweet was, we, uh, we strongly uh, talked against China. We, essentially, we need to come together against China. Uh, and the Borrell tweet did not mention China. It was, we agreed <laughs> right. that the transatlantic relationship is critical for solving global issues. Uh, so very, very different uh, context. And it was a lot of pushback. So the reality, the EU in 2020 is extremely frustrated by both the U.S. and China. Okay. Uh, on the U.S. side, uh, you know, the Trump administration is the ultimate nightmare because the EU being is a multilateral being, right? It doesn't exist except by and for multilateralism. You can't have an EU without multilateralism. And they, there's a complete uh, 
congruence between the EU level and the global order level, global governance, the rules-based order. And the Trump administration is undoing the rules-based order. So it's, it's a real nightmare, right? And you start with climate. Because if you think the, the top priorities for the EU are, one is climate and second is uh, trade. Uh, on both of them is a complete clash with the, with the US. Uh, so there's that side. And then on the other side, uh, it's true that frustration is growing uh, against China as well. Uh, even more so than a year ago. In 2019, the March 2019 strategic statement had four parts and included partnership on certain global issues like climate or Iran or, uh, or the WTO, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it included the systemic rivalry on uh, global security issues and other issues. And then there's the question of human rights and values. Um, well, uh, fast forward to now, uh, there is a strong pushback against the Hong Kong situation, a pushback on the Xinjiang situation. So value human rights. Of course, Hong Kong involves uh, the UK, which you know, has left the EU, but it's closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the joint declaration. Uh, and, um, and then there is a strong... Uh, Frustration that comes out of Germany first, but a lot of the others, like uh, Netherlands, France, etc., on indeed industrial policy. On uh, the manufacturing 2025 plan was a total a wake-up call for Germany, because right. until that point, uh, the, the Chinese were huge markets for Germany, and then 2015 they come out and say, "We're here to replace you." Right. right. So now that's vital. Uh, so those issues are fundamental, but that doesn't leave yet the EU as a strategy, right? Because right now they're pushing back hard on both sides uh, and they're calling for an approach of power. So there's been a very interesting set of essays in 2020, but Joseph Borrell in particular and Macron as well, uh, on having power for the EU, having strategic autonomy, mm-hmm. having a, a strategy. But they don't have it yet, right? Because the EU is not that kind of being that doesn't have the capacity to exert power. Right. Uh, so that's where they are, but uh, frustrated, yes. <laughs> no, <I'm... laughs> so yeah, to tell you the truth, go ahead, go ahead, Colin. Yeah. No, I'd be interested, Eve, too, on your your reaction to this. I, too, listened to the, um, just listened to the press conferences by <laughs> Ursula von der Leyen and, and uh, Charles. Michel. Uh, Michel. Yeah, uh, the EU commissioner, and I did not he- hear. I did not. I did not come out, Alan, the same with the same impression you did. That doesn't mean your impression is correct. Far from it. But I, I thought, okay. I think the, the Europeans seem to me to be really put upon both for on this industrial policy front that Eve you just mentioned, and but also very much on the investment front is that apparently. Yes, they're really keen on fair play if on being able to have investment rights in China that equal or equivalent to the investment rights that Chinese investors have in in Europe. Europe, and they're absolutely. Keen to, to protect themselves in Europe, mm-hmm. not to be overinvested by China in certain sectors and certain industries. So, you know, the tough talk, the, the phrase you found her saying at the end. Um, which I can't pull up at the moment, that it's yes, okay. we count on the Chinese leadership to match our level of ambition. I, I thought what, what, you have to, what we have to realize, is, and especially in this sort of populist nationalist era, is that governments, even with the views of, that prioritize dealing with global challenges with China over the ideological ones, have to be aware that you cannot 
ignore, first of all, the actual conflicts that we have with China in various realms. And second of all, you can't ignore the fact that, that, that there are aggrieved parties domestically, which you have to defend because your, your government depends on your domestic support, obviously, this is fundamental. Mm-hmm. And so, so the fact that she's saying that we, we have some ambitions with you and we want you to match them is a perfectly, perfectly consistent with being in a negotiating engagement stance rather than a, a political engagement in which your job is to bring uh, transformation over to the side of the West on the part of the Chinese. No, I don't. I don't think that was ever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that last terms. phrase you can strike. Let, yeah. Let me uh, add something here. Is yeah. Go ahead. Uh, the frustration has built for over a year, actually, uh, and it's trickled. Uh, it's triggered on the ground by some behavior, um, and the behavior is there has been a talk, you know, at the strategic level by the Chinese side that. Uh, given the growing Cold War between U.S. and China, mm-hmm. uh, that China sees uh, the EU as a strategic uh, player and that they really want to uh, work with the EU on saving the multilateral system and, and climate change, etc. Uh, so the talk has been very high, uh, but on the ground, it has been very frustrating. Uh, first of all, the officials in Beijing are distracted by dealing with the U.S., so there's very little time to work with the EU on anything. Uh, and second of all, uh, despite the strategic level messaging, uh, there is ground level behavior that goes the other way, uh, such as the Wolf Warrior ambassadors on the ground and, and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, and so the, there is a bit of cognitive dissonance. And this is, this is also what the commission is calling here. Uh, and then there is the Hong Kong issue on top of Xinjiang where, um, yeah, they they see it a bit as a as a red line that's being crossed, right? And, right. And China knows it, right? In a way, they know that this is this is a choice to go for political control over engagement, uh, and they they calculated the cost and they decided to go forward. Yeah, no, that's fair, gentlemen. I wish we could uh, go on and on, uh, but uh, time is drawing to a close. Uh, I appreciate. Um, uh, your insights into uh, uh, Chinese policy, into U.S. policymaking, particularly policymaking for the near future. Um, I want to thank you both uh, for having taken the time uh, to once again enter the virtual studio to uh, discuss uh, U.S.-China relations. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you very much, Eve. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.